Welcome to Midnight Revolution. Midnight Revolution is a podcast celebrating the friendships that anchor us in life and the deeply centering transformative talks that accompany them. I'm Malisa Joes Khan, a family medicine physician, entrepreneur, and advocate, tackling the journey of life with my husband and two kids and making time to relish tiny moments of joy and connection. And I'm Catherine Akiko Day, a set designer for film and television, an artist, a fitness, nature, and dog lover, looking for authenticity, ease, and connection for myself and my community. Lorraine Buhonic is a talent leader and executive coach. She works as a chief people officer at Orchard and is a leadership coach and consultant for individuals and companies. Born and raised in Paris before transplanting to New York City, Lorraine is the eldest of five siblings, a passionate home cook and farmer's market devotee, a fan of crossword puzzles, and a Brooklynite. In her own life and in her coaching, Lorraine centers the deepening of self-understanding, striving to live the fullest expression of herself. Today we talk to Lorraine about how her journey led her to choosing single motherhood. Tell us how you and I met. We met at a bachelorette party, which sounds like the start of a really um, terrible story, but actually this particular bachelorette party was truly delightful, sort of the antithesis of every bachelorette party I've ever been to. Um, We rented a house in Long Island and cooked and walked on the beach and did yoga and hung out for two days. Um, And what I distinctly remember is like, being in the kitchen, kind of taking charge of uh, trying to figure out what we were all going to eat. And Catherine be like very clearly being the other very competent person there with me. And within like, what would you say? Like 12 and a half minutes. Yeah. It was very clear <laughs> we were in charge of meals. <laughs> um, and that has remained true every time we've hung out in a group of friends. Um, so it was that. And then the next morning, we did a yoga class at the house and Catherine was the only one who was literally doing a headstand while we were all like <laughs> doing like stretching. And I was like, this woman is amazing. I can't wait to get to know her. Um, and yeah, and then that's this history. Yes. Last friends. And we just started hanging out because we realized we live, both lived in Brooklyn. We actually live really close to each other. And so, yeah, here and we, we are. We've been friends through breakups and dog mm-hmm. adoptions and COVID pandemics and big self-actualizing difficult moments and good ones yeah. too. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been, it's been such a joy. So I feel so lucky that Kirsten connected us. And I think also getting to know Catherine was a little bit like, um, like looking in the mirror. There were so many moments of our friendship where I was like, Oh, you do this too. And it's not like, we're actually like quite different in terms of our interest and like so many things, but like in fundamental mm-hmm. core mechanics of like how we operate. I, I often have these moments where I'm like, oh yeah, there it is. Same, same. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. And well, I think that's a particularly delightful part of connecting with a relatively new friend is to realize there's yeah. so many intrinsic things that oh, operate yeah. in the same like oh wait you're just like me that's the best feeling that yeah I think sometimes in the world we're just moving about being like not not alone but you have your friends and then you forget that someone could be just like as weird as you or you as you or like that 
that someone could like, like these things or do them in the same way. And then you meet someone that does. And it's, it's like surprising because we change through. Yeah. Too throughout life. So your same friends, you might do things differently, sort of, or you might connect on different things. It's very validating. What are are some of those things? What are, where do you guys jive? What are the similarities? Um, Well, we were laughing uh, a few minutes ago about our compulsive need to be on time to everything and not just on time, but like almost always. Yeah. Like we are the people who are always early when we used to have like monthly dinners with our group of friends pre-COVID. I mean, it's almost like we should have set two different start times because we were <laughs> always there 45 minutes before anybody else got there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we have the same uh, recovering perfectionist mm-hmm. work ahead of us. Uh, and that's work that never ends, obviously. So it's actually mm-hmm. incredible validating and nice to have a friend who's on that journey too of just like unlearning patterns around perfectionism that are deeply um you know ingrained and and not at all helpful um Mm -hmm. I also see a lot of similarities in the way that we engage with the world and and uh, and specifically the way we engage with people we love in terms of like how we show up for them and you Mm. know via delivering food or mm. being a sounding board or so there's just um those are the things that really stand out to me I'm really excited and interested to hear your thoughts about the topic that you choose you chose um and kind of a good segue did your upbringing inform this topic and or like your decision to get to this place um I think in Yes and no, but not in ways that are as obvious as, as you would think. So it, it did in that I'm the eldest of five and I've always been sort of like the third parent to my siblings, yeah. mm-hmm. um, particularly with my, my two youngest uh, sister who are 13 and 16 years younger than me. Um, the role, the relationship you have when there's that much of an age gap is just really different. Um and being an older sister is like hardwired into my personality. It's probably my most prominent personality trait for yeah. good or and for bad. Um, so I think in that sense, like growing up in a family with lots of kids and lots of cousins, then the notion of like having my own family was always very, very top of mind. Um, my my parents split up in a pretty spectacularly awful divorce mm. that went on for years and years and years across two different countries. And so oh. I remember from the start when I was, you know, an eight and a half year old and they, we had just, we were living in the States when my parents separated. Uh, and then we moved back to France where I'm from um, pretty quickly. It's sort of like one day we were there, the next we were home. Mm. Um, and as we were kind of settling back into France, I have this very vivid, probably one of my earliest memories of being uh, in in bed at night and thinking, okay, I cannot let this experience be the excuse for not being excellent, right? So going back to the perfectionist Wow. Thing. Um, and also um, when I have my own family, I will never make these choices. Mm-hmm. And so I think- from the start, these two really big beliefs like drove so much of who I became. Number mm-hmm. one, 
I had to be great and I couldn't use this as an excuse or frankly make space for like any sort of self-compassion, right? It was about mm. continuing to like, <laughs> yeah. be good. And Just the second stay on part, the path. yeah, stay on the path. Don't be one of those kids whose parents' divorce like screws them up. Like there is, that's not okay. Um, I was eight and a half. Like how did yeah. that stop you? I was <laughs> going to like, ask you what age. Yeah. I, I just don't know where that thought even came from, but it, it was so clear. Mm-hmm. And the second was the ultimate healing experience will be finding a partner, building my own family and never mm-hmm. experiencing this. Again. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think that that second part, you know, is probably the most uh, dysfunctional thought I have had to like work through in my adult life because forever. It was like, well, I'm going to work, work, work and be great. And at some point I'll meet my person and then that will make everything better. Right. Like Mm. I will build my own family and get to a place of peace and clarity around everything. Um, and so it's actually in that sense, like it's been that thought has, and my familial experience has been really formative. Um, and, I think in a, in a lot of ways, it was a thing I needed to work through in order to get to the decision of choosing to have a family on my own, because the partner was very mm-hmm. centered in my of what a ideal familial picture looked like. And so I spent most of my twenties and early thirties dating and having, you know, lots of different long-term relationships, um, you know, because that was the path. That's just what I thought that you, mm-hmm. you did in order to get to a place of, of having kids you know, in the back of my head when I was dating in my, especially in my late twenties, I, I had this false bravado where I said things like, well, by the time I'm 34, I haven't met my partner. Like I'm definitely having a baby on my own. Mm. Um, I turned 34, then the global pandemic hit and I was yeah. alone in my apartment. <laughs> okay. I'm kind of glad I didn't do that. Also, like, was I serious about this? Like mm, probably right. not. Um, and it always felt like the worst case scenario, right? Like choosing to have a baby on my own would be the equivalent of like pulling the emergency cord when mm. you're at the end of, you haven't met the person and the only way to have kids, which is a thing that I've been so, so clear on my whole life, like mm. wanting the experience of motherhood required me to do it on my own, but it was always sort of the worst case scenario. And so the last mm. several years have really been about around like, kind of turning that belief around and realizing that actually, and and getting to a place today where I really feel like that decision is incredibly empowering. Like there's something really Mm -hmm. beautiful about um, trusting that the universe will bring the partner when the time is right. And Mm -hmm. that person will be a great addition to my family, but I don't have to um, sort of like gate the motherhood experience, which I've always known I've wanted Mm -hmm. um, anymore. So a little bit of a long-winded answer, and there's a lot more to unpack there, but. Um, well, that's everything that's we want to talk about. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. so, um, well, it actually makes me think like, well, what is it, what is it that's so special to you about motherhood? When did you first start thinking that? And you mentioned eight years old, but I'm going to yeah. guess because you were so formalized and you're thinking yeah. already at eight. So you had already thought about this plan. What is it totally. that you love about the idea of having children or being a mom? Mm-hmm. And when was the first time you, you remember thinking that? 
Yeah. I don't ever remember a time where I didn't imagine having kids. Like it's, it's, I would say it's my most conscious thought, but like, and it wasn't just, um, this is a thing that's expected of me. It's an experience I've really longed for. I I think, I think I have an amazing relationship with my mom. Um, and so, and we have a very strong, deep bond. And I think that's always something that I have wanted to, you know, experience myself. Mm -hmm. Um, the second part is I just love kids and to kind of be a part of, um, raising a person and witness all their stages of life and share a life with them um, feels like the most extraordinary, meaningful thing I could ever do in my life. Um, And I think the third piece is, you know, what's, what remains from that thought when I was a little girl kind of falling asleep is that I really do crave family, right. And, Mm -hmm. And building my own family and our traditions. And, um, I think, the interesting thing about having a partner or kids is they become mirrors to your own experience and you Mm -hmm. of theirs. Right. And so interesting things happen in familial um, Mm -hmm. constructs where like you're sharing your life with these other humans. And I think in that you're forced to shift and they're forced to shift. And I just, um, I'm so excited to experience that through the lens of, of being a mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the last piece is I'm just, I've always been very, um, nurturing and I love, you know, taking care of others. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I have four nieces and nephews and three goddaughters. And I, I mean, I'm obsessed with all my friends. Too, so <laughs> like there's some, just bring them in. Yes. Yes. Like my, you <laughs> would be to like live in a community where like all my yeah. close friends and all the kids are like three doors down and we can all just like take each other's babies and like, you know, <laughs> somebody's better at this than me so they can take them. And I'm good at, you know, the, yeah, that's, that's like would be commune. Yeah. Exactly. We talk about I, commune yeah, all the time. Friend, friend commune. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. idea. That's the dream of yeah. like all your best friends uh, raising families together. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, that's my yeah. dream too. And everyone lives close, which is like, just not the reality right now. <laughs> across the yeah. world because like you give something to get something. Um, and, yeah. and we've given up those small communities and kind of tight knit bonds to have the freedom to travel and experience different things. Um, can we, can we clarify Lorraine where you are in this journey? Um, yes. currently like practically speaking. Yeah. So I'll just give maybe a little bit of context on sort of mm-hmm. how I got here and where I am. So in, as I mentioned, so I was, I had, a, I dated a lot. I had a slew of like two year relationship in my late twenties, early thirties. I ended a relationship in November of 2019, was just about to start dating again. And then the pandemic hit. And so I had this moment of realization that, you know, I was about to turn 35. Fertility is not infinite. Um, so in July of 2020, I froze my eggs for the first time thinking that would kind of buy me a little bit of time to figure out if I, you know, and really try to find the partner, but also start to wrap my head around, okay, would I go down this path on my own? And literally as I was finishing that egg freezing cycle, I was reconnected with somebody who I I'd met five years before through a friend and felt a really, really strong connection to. We were reunited in this kind of kismet way. You know, this is like six months into the pandemic it felt like fate intervening and me reconnecting with this person. We 
fell in love. We started to plan our whole lives together. There's so much clarity around where we were going and what we were doing and so much enthusiasm for what we were building. He moved in with me. Um, you know, we talked about when we were going to get married, all the things like we opened the box around like, what would our kids be like? Which is the thing I had mm-hmm. never done in any relationship. I mm-hmm. always talked about wanting children, but I never felt safe enough in a relationship to explore like what traits of yours would they have and how would right. we raise them? We talked about all of that. Um, and to make a really long story short, something shifted uh, about six months in he started to really withdraw and um, eventually ended the relationship in a spectacularly awful way on my birthday. Um, And so I found myself, yeah, I was, it was pretty brutal. Um, And the next day he moved to Maine and and left my life. Um, And so I found myself on my 36th birthday, having just had this like whirlwind, Mm -hmm. like truly like axis shifting experience where I thought I'd I'd gotten there, right? Like I thought I'd found exactly mm-hmm. what I'd been looking for. It felt like everything made sense. I understood why I'd had all these relationships because it was supposed to lead me to this one. Mm-hmm. And then it disappeared. Um, and I remember <laughs> sitting in my living room with Catherine and two of my other friends who were both like eight, eight and a half months <laughs> pregnant at the time, yeah. mm-hmm. um, looking around and thinking like, what is happening to my life right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it took a really long time to recover and kind of heal from that breakup. It was truly one of the darkest times I've ever been through. Um, and part of what started to come up for me as I was processing the breakup is I was devastated that this relationship had ended, but I think I also was devastated by the fact that this path to motherhood was Mm -hmm. closed. Right. And so I started to look at for the first time much more seriously mm-hmm. what the experience of a kid on my own would look like. Um, and so for about, <clears throat> I guess about a year, it still felt quite fraught. And and I felt like, ah, oh, but that means it's the worst case scenario. And, right. you know, I, I had a lot of um, thoughts I needed to work through around very limiting beliefs around what I um, should or shouldn't do what I was capable of doing on my own or not, and whether it would feel fulfilling. I think the big thought that I wrestled with was, will this feel lonely? Will this experience mm-hmm. of like having a kid on my own and not being witnessed in that way by a partner and sharing yeah. it with somebody, how will that feel? So mm-hmm. um, it took a long time. And then eventually, um, I don't know exactly when, but something shifted last late summer, fall, where I, I started to, you know, look at sperm donors and really think about it. And, you know, there were a lot of logistical things that were keeping me stuck. Like how much would it cost? And could we live in my apartment? Would I have to move? Like I was so mm-hmm. overwhelmed by the logistics of it. And I just started to tackle it a little bit at a time, like piece by piece, I started to build confidence. And I did a lot of prototyping conversations where I talked to other single moms by choice and asked them about their experience and increasingly a very different picture emerged where, um, that felt it started to feel really right. Instead of it feeling really overwhelming, it started to make sense in a way where I was like, maybe this is actually the way it was always supposed to be for me. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I'm such an independent person and, um, there are elements of going down this path that I think are actually very well suited to who I am and and the way that I I like Mm -hmm. to live. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, 
so very tactically in the fall, I, so my, my preference was to use a known donor and, um, mm-hmm. I have a very dear friend, um, who I'd all, who, who I'd always thought would be the person I would ask if I went down this path. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked, he was incredibly kind and like very considerate and thoughtful, thought about it for, um, a while. And then eventually decided that it wasn't the right choice for him to, to do this with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, so in November, I just had to, you know, cause I knew I really wanted to go down this path. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I have to, I have to look for a donor. And that was hard. Honestly, the process mm-hmm. of finding a donor which we can talk about more felt really overwhelming. I, I was having a really tough time with, you know, the fertility industry as a whole is, is, is not regulated and pretty fucked up. Um, there's just a, a lot of elements about it that were overwhelming, which, which I can share. Um, but eventually I did find a donor. And then, um, in February did a a round of IVF, which literally means like retrieving eggs, fertilizing them, making embryos, growing those in a lab for about a week, and then doing genetic testing to see, um, how many of those embryos are, uh, PTG or kind of euploid. So genetically normal. Um, and so I have two frozen embryos and I'm starting today, a second round of IVF, to make hopefully a couple more embryos. Um, and then I'm hoping to do a transfer later this, this year. So I'm not exactly sure when, but, uh, definitely before the end of the year. Um, so that's where I am in the, in the process. Wow. Thanks so much for sharing your journey. That's, you know, you list it like, you know, I did this and this and this, each one of those events could be its own story. Yeah. You know, like (laughs) just going through an egg retrieval, finding a donor, yeah. each of those are, are huge tasks. Yeah. What, you yeah. know, especially for someone who is a recovering perfectionist or, or, um, struggles with that, that pull sometimes, you know, fertility mm-hmm. is a real black box because there are <laughs> yes. so many elements and so many things yeah. to fine tune and things like genetic testing and, you know, even further down the journey, um, pregnancy itself, even motherhood can become really a, a really deep place to go. Um, how did you, what was it like, you you know, you mentioned a few things that were really difficult or fucked up. What was it like? Was that part of, you know, did that play into it at all? How, how was that Mm -hmm. experience? Yeah. Um, yeah. Fertility is, it's really complicated. And, you know, as someone who generally, works hard and therefore is able to achieve the results that I like when it comes to fertility, it's just completely different. Right. And I, I also, um, I had such a, I had an amazing experience the first time I froze my eggs where I had, I got way more eggs than I should have. So I kind of went in being like, I must be pretty fertile, (laughs) you know, worked really well last time. Um, and it turns out that, uh, I actually am fundamentally quite average, which is wonderful in fertility world, but you know, you always want to be better than, um, especially (laughs) because, uh, the state, you want to crush it. You want to crush the egg retrieval. Yeah. yeah, And you don't have to do it again. You know, you only have to do it once. Yeah. It's Um, it's hard. It's hard physically too. Yeah. Is And I, I think the, so the, the parts of it that I think were, were tricky too, were, um, 
you know, the financial burden is, is massive. And the reality mm-hmm. is um, IVF is not covered for single women um, yeah. because I don't have infertility. I just don't mm-hmm. have a partner. Yeah. Um, and so Ugh. it's not a thought that I like sit with because it's not that helpful, but there's a fundamental inequity there. That's, yeah. that's hard, right? Like yeah. we're coupled in any way, even in a same sex couple, I would have access to care and financial benefits that I, I do not as a single mm-hmm. mom. It's daunting because each cycle costs about $20,000, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's big, big investments, Um, at the same time, I'm really, really, really privileged that I'm in a position to even do it in the first place. And so Mm -hmm. I tried to focus on that and kind of forget the Mm -hmm. the rest, but it was something I really had to plan for. I I think the other thing is, um, you know, the fertility industry is, is really, especially the sperm bank industry is really, uh, it was a thing I really struggled with. Um, Mm -hmm. it's not right. So on the one hand, you know, in my mind, I pictured that, you know, once I decided to use a donor, I would like go to a place. I mm-hmm. imagine there was just one that just had clinics everywhere. <laughs> yeah. In my mind, you would have like too many to choose from. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, I was met with, you know, a, a process that's fundamentally impersonal where you don't feel totally safe. Right. Because these, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things that are that in some ways are are good, right? Like the, there's a lot of medical screening, genetic mm-hmm. screening, which um, my dad passed of ALS. So it was really important for me to understand the genetic makeup of my sperm donor. Um, so that information is helpful, but <clears throat> what you don't know is how many other families are using the same donor, right? So um, the more, and, and also, That's you know, yeah. Wrapping my head around the fact that my kids in all likelihood will have likely a hundred genetic half siblings is mm-hmm. really hard as somebody who's yeah, like yeah. incredibly close to siblings, right? Because it creates a connection with those families that is entirely based on a choice that you all made to use the same donor, but mm-hmm. there's an intimacy there, right? Like my kids are going to want to understand who they're related to. I, I mm-hmm. so understand that. And I have no control <laughs> Yeah, that, which yeah. that's where the perfectionist piece really comes in where I'm like, but what if I don't jive with these people or, <laughs> or worse? Like what if they like their genetic half siblings more than me as adults? Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's like a lot of thoughts like that, that, that come up. Um, is there, is there tra- so- like, could the, um, could the, could you know that person? I thought that was sort of like, you, you wouldn't actually be able to find that person. Right. Necessarily. So it's really interesting. And this is a part that I think is, is important to talk about because few people know about it, but so historically when sperm donation became normal in the Mm -hmm. eighties and nineties, um, most sperm donations were anonymous and you get a baby picture of the donor as a way to maintain that option, that, um, confidentiality, but you'd never Mm -hmm. know what they look like as an adult. Right. you know, some writing, sometimes a voice recording, baby picture and medical records. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, these days, um, because there's been a, a generation of donor conceived people that has been born and is now adult right. um, and 23 and me came up, the notion of remaining anonymous is impossible, right? Mm-hmm. If you're donor conceived, you can find your donor by just doing a DNA sample on 23andMe because Mm. you'll be connected to a third cousin. And so people like no longer can remain anonymous. And also as these 
donor conceived people have, you know, come into adulthood, they've shared that it's really important to know where you came from. Right. And so not knowing where half of your genetic makeup comes from is, is really important. And so it's creating big shifts in the industry where now um, I, I actually only looked at donors that were open, meaning they are open to being contacted by my mm. child okay. when they yeah. are 18. Um, and that was really important to me because I wanted to have that level of transparency so that the door was open should mm-hmm. my child want to open it. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it too is you um, you can be connected to families who've used the same donor if you choose. So the banks will mm. connect you. And in talking to a lot of um, people who've gone down this path, folks do opt into that because it's, it's a way it, you know, and it's, it's an interesting thing to navigate. I haven't Mm -hmm. fully wrapped my head around it, but I think I can see the value in, in under, in sort of understanding where you you come from. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's so many elements. Like, yeah, I'm just reeling from hearing your story. I can't imagine what it was like to go through it Mm -hmm. and how overwhelming you know, all those elements, just like any person, let alone someone with anxiety or who may have, uh, who has recovered from per- perfectionism, yeah. you're going to play out like every scenario yeah. to the end, like any person oh. naturally think the and then lack what, of what about when they're, yeah. What about when they're yeah. 18? Yeah. What about if, you know, if they want to meet a half sibling, what about, do we, do we ever do a play date together? Like, do we like, would yeah. I ever call them or would I just wait until they're 18? You know? There's so many questions to ask about that journey. Um, and yeah, it, and it comes up all the time, right? Like it's at every stage, like the day mm-hmm. after I fertilized my eggs, I woke up and I was like, oh my God, I have forever like connected my fate to this random stranger. And what if like, I don't yeah. like him in real yeah. life, you know, like, I don't know, like he yeah. seems nice, but like. I don't know. Yeah. Him, right. So I think yeah. it's that, you know, that instinct will never go away. Yeah. And um, in a lot of ways, um, this path is choosing to trust my ability to navigate mm, the things yeah. that I can't yeah. mm. Right. Yeah. Mm. Your, trust your intuition, trust your grit that whatever yeah. comes up, you're going to get through we'll it. it yeah. You'll yeah. we'll yeah. figure it out, which is the antidote to perfectionism, yeah. right? Exactly. It's um, yeah. like, whatever happens, it's a mantra that, you know, I try to say to myself just, for, you know, yeah. um, and per- perfectionism presents it different ways. And Catherine and I have talked about how we both have, right. you know, we have, I have that tendency, but for different things that I just say, whatever happens, I can get through it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I have the ability and just saying that, even if you mm-hmm. don't even really believe it mm-hmm. can help. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it gets you to a place where you can then move to the next step. Yeah. 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 And it's been, you know, I think the thing that has fundamentally gotten me through and, and gotten me onto this path is this like like deep, deep connection I feel to my future child. And it's going to sound, this is where we get a little woo-woo, but like- Get woo-woo, get (laughs) (laughs) woo-woo. I feel like my baby's spirit is like here. Like I I feel it so Mm -hmm. strongly. It is so clear to me that 
this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's like, I can't let it stand in my way. Um, And so it's forced me to kind of relinquish control in, in big ways and, push through some discomfort around things like sperm donation. And there's still moments where I'm like, oh, did I make the right choice? But also just accept that like the universe is kind of steering me here, right? And I can either resist, which looked like treating dating like a full-time job and being really Mm -hmm. hard on myself, not having met the partner and, you know, not allowing myself to get to the stage that I, I deeply long for, which is motherhood. Or I can just flow and just go with, you know, this donor for reasons that I can't explain rationally, really. I mean, I can point to a few things felt like this was the thing I was Mm -hmm. the person I was supposed to choose. Mm -hmm. And so I can question it or I can trust it and moving forward. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of like a, go ahead. I would say that practice is really, that's the, that's how you let go of perfectionism too, right? Like, yeah in your instinct instead of your head. Yes. The instinct, intuition, intuition, instinct. It's kind of like a proverbial Ouija board where you're kind (laughs) of, you're kind of like, where could this take me? But it takes so much. um, Like, it's easy to be like, oh, I just go with a flow. I'm chill or whatever. No one's really (laughs) chill. Okay. No, because actually not me. (laughs) Because you have to be quite intentional. I mean, you can be mean that you can take things as they come and adapt and evolve that takes so much intentionality like you really have to focus Mm. in and listen to yourself and just to point out that that takes work and you did all that that work um, so much work and it's yeah you know really hard I think there was a big hurdle for me around um if I make this choice I make giving up this other big dream of like partnership and, you know, not, yeah. am I choosing to be a mom and closing the door to being someone's life partner? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so I, I think that that piece, you know, was a big thing, right? Because for the beginning of that relationship that ended in 2021, I really felt like I found what I was looking for. And I, yeah. you know, I loved that experience. And so um, a, a lot of single moms I've talked to have, sort of come to that choice because actually they're not that interested in partnership for, re- you know, they're, they are super happy in their life independently. And yeah, I, I think it, it, it required a level of mental flexibility and like, and kind of like unlearning deeply held mm-hmm. patriarchal beliefs to trust yeah. that like it can come out of order and I don't need to depend on one to have the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I'm going down this path, you know, I think about my own childhood and how like marred it was by the fact that my parents had this horrible divorce. And I actually mm-hmm. feel like I can raise a kid in a way that will be so much more peaceful um, as a single parent, right? Because I'm not going to, you know, we were constantly torn back and forth on everyone's, my mom's mm-hmm. preference, my dad's. And, you know, it's really hard to raise a child when you're co-parenting and you're no longer in a relationship. And so Mm -hmm. I actually take a lot of um, comfort in knowing that I won't, I don't, that is a belief and a worry I can take off the table, um, which is, it feels really good. Yeah. We tell our kids uh, sometimes, I mean, even like in school, kids are all already saying like, Oh, who do you want to marry? Like, and we, 
have to, we like constantly say, especially for our older one, because they talk about it a lot in elementary school. Yes, that could happen. You could marry someone or you don't have to marry someone or you could live with someone and not marry them. Or you could have a baby, even if you didn't get married or there is no one way to live. Yes. You know, yeah, there's no one so way to live. You have to teach your kids that they have freedom to play in a with a right wider range of colors than just the two yes. that you know are the most prevalent. Oh, um, yes. And I, if I felt that sooner, I don't know that I would have gotten on this track first because I did always really want partnership, and so yeah. I, this was probably always the path that I was supposed to be on. But I think yeah. I would have treated this less as a worst case scenario, which probably would have felt better. Right. Um, the other thing that I think was really has been really striking to me is when I started to think about this seriously, I got really worried about, you know, what will people think, right? Is this weird that I'm doing this? Like, will they think that I couldn't find a partner and that's why I have to do this or that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really close to my family in France. This is not really a path that people go down very often. And so I worried about like, what would my grandma think or my, mm-hmm. you know, aunts and uncles and I think the most delightful part of this process for me has been the degree to which everyone's like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. You know, like kind of support and, and love and conviction that people have in me and my Mm. ability to do that. And, you know, I think I sort of like believed a thing that wasn't true. I I thought that everyone was like such a strange thing to do when in fact, all I've gotten is like incredible support. And, um, and that, that was really, um, it was surprising and incredibly reassuring because there's obviously, you know, I'm going to need to rely on (laughs) my community a lot in this moment and to have all the support going in feels really good and normalizes this experience that I'm embarking on. Mm. I mean, I, I feel like I've had to, go through a a similar journey of unlearning, just like what a beautiful way to put it, Lorraine, to color with more than these, with all the colors, right? And to know that there's more, because, you know, we grew up watching Cinderella and like every single Disney movie, right? Every storybook, every commercial, every everything. Um, Because, you know, talking to Neha last time about, you know, how much pressure she got to get married, I didn't even get that much from my parents in that in that vein, but just society. So even me, who different from you, never really felt strongly about having kids, but just being a single woman, right, of a certain age is like you still feel like you're pushing on the ocean. Like in my 30s, I definitely had points where I was like, I should be dating a lot mm-hmm. and but wasn't really actually feeling like it. Um, yes. I'm like, where's this coming from? And even same like turning 35, I remember that year was the first time I ever was like, does this mean – because you and I both know how much work and how long it takes to even meet someone you like and then yeah. build a life together, be on the same page. Um, and I was like, oh, is this door closing? Is that okay with me? And I had to do like a lot of unlearning of and like unpacking of like what is true to me and what is stuff that I've just absorbed about how things yeah. should look, should be, what my life should look like. 
that my worth is tied to being in a relationship or even just actively looking for one. Like so much of my value, according to society, was tied to that. And it's been so freeing. And I've really vibed with you as you've gone on this in your own way, where we're like, we can do whatever the fuck we want. There is no script. You can do whatever you want. Even when you try to follow the script, it doesn't work out. Like, not necessarily. So it's like, (laughs) it's like, there's, well, Go ahead. Then if the it's not working, throw it out. But I think the the thing that um so I've met a lot of really just incredible single moms by choice in this process. And I think mm-hmm. that part, like what has gotten me to this point and helped me build my confidence has been having these prototyping conversations with women mm-hmm. who are a little bit farther down this path or at the same stage. Um, A, because it's like a group of women. I'm like, Oh, you are all amazing. Like this, you didn't, you are not losers. Who yeah. Like <laughs> are stuck in this like waiting room. You're literally creating these yeah. lives that are so yeah. and that we just, we, we mm-hmm. weren't even told we could claim. Right. Um, so there's that part, but one of them said something that was really striking to me she was like, you know, choosing to go down this path or, you know, the journey that you're on too, Catherine is a little bit like, escaping a cult, right? Like we are absolutely completely giving up these beliefs that we've grown (laughs) up with our whole lives, right? Like, and the cult is the the patriarchy that there's one way of doing it. It looks like this. And, you know, I still have those moments where I I find myself like being pulled back in in a direction like this. And that, that image was so helpful because it's, that's exactly my experience. There's so much unlearning, right? Um, which is why, you know, as obviously I'm, I'm in a executive role at my company and at a stage in my life where I get to like, tell people at work what I'm doing. And I've chosen to be really, really open about my journey because mm-hmm. I want, you know, a 22 year old woman to have yes. an example of someone who's 37 and making this choice, not by default, not because she's failed, but because it's the right choice for her, right? There's so few. And it's out there. That option is out there. Yeah. Yes. And it's not a thing to be ashamed of, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so I, I talk about it all the time. Like I talk about it with our exec team and Mm I, I, I really make an effort, like something about it, right. Seem odd to be like, I've picked a, I'm I'm going through IVF. The next question is like, Oh, with whom? And it's like, with a donor and people get curious. And it's like, I could be shy about it or cagey, but like, I actually think it's so important to mm. tell these stories. Yeah. And here we are about, doing it here. Yeah. 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 About telling our kids showing different archetypes. Like I yeah. think yes, I had been a woman in my twenties and had examples yeah. of different options yeah. that looked joyful and fulfilling and hard because there is no one right choice. Right. Um, yes. I don't yep. I think it would have changed my perspective and in a way that would have been really helpful at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But there's so many things, especially with matrescence, um, which is the concept of becoming a mother. It's like adolescence, um, but the transition to motherhood. And 
so people say that matrescence is, you know, when you have the baby, you become a mother or when you're pregnant. I really think it starts way earlier. It's even the decision about mm. what your relationship is like with your mother, if you feel your own mother. And then if you if you have a pull or what your relationship is like as a person who can bear a child with whether or not you will go through that journey or what that journey will look like for you. And so I include all of that in in matrescence. So I, I feel like this is really a beautiful story of, of matrescence and, and, and how you're going through this journey. Mm. And in matrescence, people emphasize binaries all the time. So we, we, we just don't express these stories. So people start believing, even though everyone's experience is myriad and diverse and unique, we start believing that there is only one way, or there's only one picture of a happy family. And there's only one picture of a good pregnancy. And there's only one picture of a good delivery or, you know, or of a family perfect delivery. Um, and, and in reality, there just, there just isn't. It's that resistance you're, you're trying to like, sometimes the traditional archetype fits perfectly and that is beautiful too you know like I have Mm -hmm. friends who are in traditional paths and that work really well for them but I I think that the risk is you get so attached to it that you don't allow yourself to evolve right like in this moment this feels absolutely right yeah three years ago it didn't and I had Mm -hmm. you know and so I think learning to kind of flow with your reality, mm-hmm. trust that you're being steered in the direction you're supposed to go and, and have faith that, um, it doesn't have to be just one way, right. Allows yourself mm-hmm. to also evolve. And I think that's the most important thing because, you know, the, the, I don't know what's on the other side of actually getting pregnant and having a baby, but I'm nearly 100% certain that I will be fundamentally different on the other side of this experience from where I am now. And yeah, so you will practice yeah relinquishing, you know, this idea of like who I am right now is like who I am forever. Um, trusting that you can evolve is really important, right? Cause I think motherhood is going to be the ultimate (laughs) evolution, by the way, like perfectionist recovery program, right? You cannot. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. It's cold Turkey. It's, it's like a, it's a trip. Um, we'll do another one. (laughs) (laughs) Different parts of your journey. I'm super interested, Lorraine, um, because I know you also dabble in IFS. Um, and what you were describing and what Melissa was describing, you know, it's described so simply of following your intuition and, um, being in a place where you can feel confidence in yourself that you can navigate whatever comes up. And in IFS, that is what self is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how, what was that journey like? And what did you practically do? And you you mentioned also feeling the spirit of your baby, for example. Um, I know that there were specific steps that you took or things that you tried, things that you got curious about um, that helped you kind of shed a lot of your preconceptions, like you said, a lot of the limiting beliefs that some of your parts had um, and and arrive in a place where, you know, and and just like we said, it's not like you're never afraid, you're never uncertain. Yeah, it's yeah. that you're kind of 
making choices more and more often that align mm. in yeah. self. You keep mm. choosing it, right? You keep making that choice again and you again. You can't and- take a back seat. You can't just yeah. sort of like be a passenger for your own life. You Like you're saying, I think that's such a good point. You have to keep yeah. making those decisions. And it's a practice yeah. and it's yeah. a it's an evolution. So yeah, what were the things that you did that and got curious about and tried out that got you on that path of choosing more and more? I think um, it, it it's a pretty long journey. I mean, it, it starts yeah. in early 2016 when I worked with a coach for the first time who introduced me to this concept of wounded child, protective self, higher self. And that just was so deeply resonant where I was like, yes, I, I relate to all of these parts so well. And it helped me start to excavate some of the stuff that had been going on. And then that sent me on my own journey of becoming a coach. And in that coaching training, you know, we are taught to identify all these parts. It's not IFS, but it's very close in terms mm-hmm. of that. So I started, see I had an appreciator and someone who liked to sabotage me, which was my inner critic. And I connected mm-hmm. way more deeply to my higher self. And so in that process, the characters started to be sketched. Um, and then through gestalt therapy, which is what I do as my primary form of therapy with my therapist, I started to do a lot of work with the inner child, which was so important because I started that when my dad got sick. We we were estranged for seven years before he got sick and eventually passed. And so there was a lot of like childhood wound stuff I needed to work through. Mm-hmm. So those three things really worked together. And then the relationship happened And then I think the relationship falling apart, my dad passing away, which all happened sort of within Mm. the same 12 month period. um, It was like all the worst case scenarios, right? Like my dad dying, reconciling, me meeting my person and it not working out. Mm -hmm. Um, It all happened so fast together that it was almost like the universe was like, and now you get to practice all this stuff, right? (laughs) And so, and I, I was really like, I mean, I was broken, um, for a a while. Um, and that's when IFS came into my life, um, because I felt like there was deeper parts work that I needed to do. Like I started to feel a little constrained in just the inner child protective self, Mm -hmm. higher self paradigm. Um, and so I started to read about it. I took a class and it just, and then I started to use it all the time with my clients <laughs> with myself, I started to use it in Gestalt. I was like, we need to use these other parts too. Like I can't just use these, these two. Right. Um, and so that has helped me in two big ways. One in sort of better understanding the, the dynamics and starting to split up my anxiety from my intuition. Cause sometimes the signals get crossed, right? Like oh, you yeah. can't always t- of course. Oh, yes. anxious. And my intuition, like, and it, yeah. it, it's is a life's work. It's never going to be yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. But I, I become more tuned in. Um, but the other thing too, is I had to learn to pay attention to my body, right? Like I mm-hmm. live uh, my life yeah. as a floating head until my thirties <laughs> and yes. started to connect to my body a little bit. Um, somebody used so many that. people do. Yeah. I'm raising my hand. And now on a podcast I heard this week, somebody said, you know, I spent so many years treating my, my body, like it was a plant stand for my head. And I was like, oh my God, that's <laughs> oh, I like that. I've ever heard. Like, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's really um, good. 
And, uh, and so that's where I was. And once I started to pay attention to my body, a lot of additional wisdom came around. Like I feel tension in my gut. Is that intuition or is that anxiety? And the the more I listened Mm -hmm. gently Mm -hmm. and, you know, being so broken for a stretch required practicing self-compassion in a way that I had never before, like being more gentle than I ever had been. Um, and I think that's when I started to connect to like higher things like the, I mean, the baby spirit thing, it was, I would have kind of dismissed it as kind of a ridiculous thought, but like, I just, it's so clear to me now. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's all these parts together. And, um, in coaching my clients, there's the kind of this magical thing happens where often they're working on things that I'm also working through. And so something about witnessing and being a part of other people's work has also helped me Mm. tune even more. Um, And what I'm doing now, which I hadn't done before is EMDR therapy, which um, is really, it's like fundamentally changing my experience with a lot of these childhood experiences. Um, So that's another, you know, I think trying different modalities is very helpful and Mm -hmm. that one feels shifting things in a really positive way. Yeah. So lots of different things. Um, And then I don't know if you've both experienced this, I'm sure you have, but recovering from the worst thing you could ever imagine happening to you Mm -hmm. twice um, just also has a way of like reconnecting you to yourself, like nothing else. Right. Like, because I think when I think about like, oh, am I going to be able to handle the sleep deprivation? Like, yeah, it's going to be really hard, but like, of course I've been tired before. Right. Like Um, there are elements that I can't imagine that will be harder than I could possibly imagine. But I just, I look at the way that I weathered that 2021 storm and it just gives me, um, a lot of faith that I can, I can find my way in the dark. You built trust with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I think we mentioned that we talked about that last session or that maybe the, the one where we were talking about therapy and IFS that when you're, when you're, when every, when the whole block tower is broken down, you get a chance to really like evaluate how you <laughs> want to build it up again. Yeah. And like, okay, let me not rush right away to like yeah. cobble <laughs> something together, which is totally our instinct. Yeah. But you're just, so broken that you can't even hold the block. So you're like, there's nothing okay, to do. There's nothing to lose, right? Yeah. You're at the bottom and you kind yeah. of like look up. And you're like, whoa, like I actually <laughs> like, this is a grand can- canvas to like, mm-hmm. I can, I can actually do it the way you, you can reconnect with yourself. Just like you're saying, intentionally you build, build things. If you choose, you know, it's hard. It's not like, it's like the next day or like the next mm-hmm. moment, mm-hmm. but there, there's sometimes a break in the storm and then you can find that way up. Yeah. 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 And it, you know, it didn't make any sense at the time. There's a lot of it that still doesn't make any intellectual sense, but I think the way in which everything is coming together for me is in the sort of like clarity I have around this choice yeah. after years of pushing against it. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, there's something so magical about opening the box, the kid box that I, I picture like a box on the top shelf that I, I know was there the whole time, but like, <laughs> opening it by myself and getting to yeah. like 
imagine it exactly the way that I want to. Mm. Um, it's just so, it's so joyful after the struggle it's taken to uh, get here. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And there, I have no misconceptions about how hard parts of the experience are going to be, but there's something about manifesting this like longest held, deepest dream mm. for yourself that just right. feels really and it's, good. And I think that's an important distinction because sometimes we're trying to strive for something we think is our goal, but this sounds like this is um, a deep and honest and, you know, it's truthful to yourself, um, um, which doesn't mean, I think what you're saying, it's, it doesn't mean that the outcome is perfect or the journey is perfect, but it's perfect because you're being honest with yourself, mm, that you're yeah. there with yourself and you're, you're able to listen and believe in yourself. It's magical to like give yourself permission to go after your mm, dreams. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think that is the ultimate way to demonstrate your trust for your, with, you know, how, how yeah. ability to navigate things. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be see and my apartment will never be as clean as it is now. And that's okay. <laughs> Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm excited. It makes all the pokes and prods and the very like unpleasant medical parts of this experience. Um, a lot of the hundred genetic half siblings, all of those things. <laughs> well, okay. It's going to be fine. We'll figure it's, it out. It's going to be oh, good. It's okay. going to be fine. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. Permission to go after your dreams. I'm like, that hit me in such a vibe. I was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what we want yeah permission oh that was yeah. beautiful Lorraine thanks so much for sharing yeah. your journey and it's like I feel like I just watched the preview for a movie like I'm like <laughs> I need to know like I need to be with you on your this journey I want to know more we'll be in it together we'll be yeah. in it together um, yes definitely I tend to share lots of it so we get to be continued to be um, continued yeah continued, but it was to share it with you both I mean, and like you were saying earlier, I'm so grateful to you and all our friends who have come on this podcast, because this is what it's about is like being yes. able to share stories that you don't often hear that aren't yeah. often kind of amplified because it we know how much it matters to hear these stories. We know what it's like to grow up in a world where it seems like your choices are limited, your options are limited, your path is limited, your voice mm -hmm. doesn't matter, your experience doesn't matter. Right. So I, it's so cool and so important that you were able to come here and share this with us and with yeah. everyone. It was so lovely to talk about it. Um, and I'll continue to listen to everyone else's stories because that also is how you build momentum. It's like, this is my version of it, but yeah. everyone they has their own um has their own yeah so. all right friends all right thank you so much okay bye y'all love you, love you. Bye. Bye. bye thanks for listening to midnight revolution with Melissa joyce khan and katherine akiko day our music is by alishaba etube like follow subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts